0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you, uh, I I know that most of you have just arrived uh, and may not have been listening to this series, but over the last several weeks we've been walking through a series called Soul Drift and we've been walking or talking through this idea of uh, what are we called to as believers and what have we drifted from and so my my desire throughout the series has been to talk through the concept of like idolatry uh, adultery altars uh, just that realm of what does scripture say about this idea of of uh, just purity what does what this idea uh, of scripture say about uh, moving from our first love and, and that kind of a thing and over the last several weeks, we've been walking through Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, which is called the Shema, which in Hebrew means to hear or to listen. It's the idea of to come under the authority of, it's actually to obey. And if, if you missed all those, uh, we're only 10 sessions in, so you could get caught up a lot quicker than Eric's series. And so, uh, but what I want to do is, uh, I want to actually start diving into the idea of idolatry. And it's, it's a little intimidating because uh, the Bible actually has far more to say about idolatry uh, than I thought it did. And so it's like this, it's like this ocean. You step into it and it's like, oh, it's a little bit deeper. Oh, it's a little bit bigger uh, than I was expecting. But I just want to begin to kind of jump into this a little bit. And we may not, I'm, I'm still, well, we'll figure out where we're going here. It's going to be fun. Uh, I just want to do a quick review of what we were talking about before, which is the whole idea of the Shema. And we were talking about this idea that what God is calling us to uh, is an exclusive and ever-expanding devotion to God. That what He is calling us to is, is an intentional, but relational, passionate, yet not emotional relationship with Him. In other words, could you pursue Him? Could you be exclusive in your relationship with Jesus? And yes, there is an emotion. Yes, there's passion in that. But it's, it's a covenantal decision. It, it is a decision to say, Lord, regardless of my emotions, regardless how I feel, regardless of the goosebumps, regardless of what culture is doing, regardless of, of what is swirling around me, I am going to pursue Christ with everything. And it's interesting, when, when you look at Moses' command to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6, they're about to enter into the land of promise, Oh, poor guy. But they're about to enter into the line of promise, and Moses is giving the final hoorah declaration. And Moses says, I want to give you some reminders. I I want to give you an exhortation for your soul, which actually becomes the undercurrent of the entire book of Deuteronomy. It keeps coming up over and over. Would you love God? Would you just pursue him? Would you have an exclusive devotion to him? And so if I could summarize the entire Shema studies that took us several weeks to get through, uh, here, here is kind of my amplified version of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is what Moses is saying. He says, Shema, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And again, there's this idea baked into even that concept that he alone is our God, and therefore we should pursue him alone, not get distracted by the gods of this world. He alone is is our God. Therefore, you shall love Yahweh your God with a covenantal, voluntary, passionate love and where you worship and become more like the one you love the most with all of your inner person, which is what we often translate heart, but includes your mind, your will, your emotions, your desires, your intentions, with the whole of your life, which is what we often translate soul, but ironically in Hebrew, the soul contains both your physical and your inner life. And if you missed that one, uh, you need to go back and listen to it because it's awkward. Uh, But with all of your inner person, with the whole of your life, meaning all that you are, physically and internally, and with everything that you have, so your talent, your ability, your possessions, your money, your time, everything. Everything should be devoted unto Jesus Christ. Everything should be given in pursuit of the God of the universe. And so whether it's your inner life, whether it's your outer life, whether it's the things you have, all that you are and all that you have should be given in pursuit of our King. Which then begs the question, are you? Are you genuinely pursuing Jesus with everything? Well, yeah, he has my heart. Okay, but does he have your mind? Does he have your body? Does he have your time? Does he have your affections? Does he have your goals? Does he have, your, does he have everything? And it's so easy in the church— to give God lip service and say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I love God with everything. Yes! And yet, you actually look at how we spend our time, and you look at how we spend our money, and and you look at what we talk about, and you you just look at our lives. And I think the conclusion you have to come to is, while we may give God good lip service, the reality is, I don't know if we genuinely love God with all that we are and all that we have, culturally, as the church. Which then brings us into this idea of idolatry. And adultery. You, you realize that if, if you have this husband and a wife, the moment that the husband or the wife sets their affections upon anyone else, whether they've actually done anything physically, the moment they set their affections on something else, they've already started walking the path of adultery. That they're having multiple lovers within their heart and their mind and their souls. And you realize what God is calling us to is an, is an exclusive relationship with himself that we are not to pursue other lovers of this culture, whatever they may be in our lives. And so we're called again to an exclusive relationship and he's longing to draw us in into this deep, rich relationship with himself. And biblically, the moment that I turn from God or add something to God, we call that adultery. Or idolatry. And so I want to begin to, kind of step into this a little bit and start talking about, okay, what is idolatry? What are idols? And we, we have a cultural understanding of that. In other words, I hear the word idol, I think of like a little Buddhist statue, which then means I can easily write it off because I don't have any Buddhist statues. I do not worship at Buddhist statues. But if I was to actually analyze my life, do you realize there are idols in my life? And though I mean they may not be carved out of wood or stone, they're probably more like plasma with screens culturally, or they might be uh, green and sit in a bank account. Well, they're not green anymore, it's all digital. but you know you know it's, <laughs> you know it, it might it might be titles or it might be success or it might be relationships or we still have idolatry in our culture. We just don't call them that. So they're a little bit harder to see. So all that being said is, let's look at idolatry specifically scripturally. When Israel came into the promised land, or even when they are in Egypt, you realize they were surrounded by idols. Uh, whether they were living in the promised land, whether they were slaves in Egypt, they were surrounded by a culture of idolatry. I came across this quote. I, I just want to read this. It's a little bit longer, but I think it sets a great platform uh, for this whole concept of idolatry. <clears throat> so this is what one of the scholars says. He's basically taking a whole bunch of research, and he's cobbling it together. So I, I left all of his footnotes in the text, if, in case you were watching this or want to get the notes later, uh, but I'm not going to read the, those parts. I'll just read his summary statements uh, to kind of help us move through this. He says this, an idol's primary function was not to physically represent what a deity looked like. Instead, an idol formed the primary locus or medium for the deity to manifest himself or herself in the world. In the ancient Near East, deities needed idols to represent their presence on earth because they lived in heavenly courts. The deities made only temporary visits to earth as needs arose. Again, this is just some of the the concepts of the ancient cultures. This is what they believed. Uh, even if a deity did not have an idol, ancient Near Eastern people believed that it still existed. But if an idol of the deity did exist, the fate of that deity was in inextric- I can't say that word. It was tightly bound uh, to the fate of its idol. If the idol was present, the deity was present. If the idol was mutilated, the deity was mutilated. If a conquering army carried, the, uh, the, uh, carried away the idol, the deity left the city. Thus the idol simultaneously was and was not the deity. Uh, op- oppositely, the deity simultaneously was and was not its idol. Although wartime propaganda would state that a deity was destroyed when its idol was destroyed, worshipers rarely believed this. Ancient Near Eastern people believed in the distinctiveness yet inseparability of the physical and non-physical realms. Now, that may have just sound like a whole bunch of garbly gook. Uh, but here's the idea. In the ancient cultures speaking of Scripture, in the ancient Near East, there was this idea that the deity, the gods, were represented by their, by their idols, by the stone or the, the wood or whatever they, were, they had. So much so that when the god was going to appear, they appeared through the idol. Does this make any sense? And therefore, whatever the people did to the idol, the people were doing to that god. If the god smote me with, say, a bad crop, then I could take a pin and I could poke him. And be like, I didn't like that. And so there was this whole manipulation concept that what the gods are doing to me, I would, I would do back to the idols. But if I wanted to appease the gods so I can get something from them, then I would do something nice to the idols. And so the whole deity, God idea, of the pagan world was wrapped up in the idols themselves. Is this making any sense? S- stick with me. When you start to walk through, specifically even Scripture, you start to notice that these gods... Now, whether you want to say uh, they were demons, uh, Paul seems to elude the fact that in the New Testament, the the worship of idols was actually worship of demons. Uh, So whether you want to say it was a demonic kind of worship, or whether you want to say it was just mythology, however you want to phrase this, you realize uh, it is a work of the enemy. Because the whole idea of idolatry was trying to remove our focus from the God and put it upon something else. And what the... Lesser deity gods, they're not gods. You Do you understand that? There's only one God. Okay, so when we're using the word gods, we're not talking, just stick with me in the biblical framework, okay? <clears throat> but when you have these lesser quote-unquote gods demanding certain things, and again, whether it was, whether it was a demonic influence and they, they, you need to give a child sacrifice, or whether they just said, you know what we should probably do? We should probably kill our kids and see if that, that'll appease the gods. Whatever, however it came to be, we don't have direct evidence. Regardless, what's interesting or sad is that these quote-unquote idols, these gods, began to demand certain things from their worshipers if they wanted the pleasure of the gods themselves. So if I wanted good crops, if I wanted my an- animals to produce, if I wanted good relationships, if I wanted happiness, if, if whatever it is that I'm seeking after— I had to do certain things to appease these idols. And as you look at Scripture, there's, there's a sad list. There was child and human sacrifice. And I think I mentioned this before, but one of the things that they would often do, they had uh, several of the gods in, in Canaan of the promised land. They would make out of bronze, and they would put a fire underneath the idol. They would heat up the bronze idol. And typically the, the idol had their hands open like this. And then what they would do is, you know, once a year or so, uh, they would choose, out of everybody, uh, one of the newborn sons, uh, if it was a firstborn, and they would offer a firstborn son upon, upon the altar uh, of this idol. And so they would take the little baby, throw it up on the burning hands, and the baby would be screaming, and they would be worshiping and, and giving worship to this idol. And of course, we're horrified at this kind of stuff, but folks, we still do this. Now, we don't throw it in a fire, but we just send them down to a clinic, it's the same attitude. It's that same demonic spirit behind all this stuff. Uh, there, there was child and human sacrifice. There was sexual perverseness and prostitution. And, of course, you know, a, a culture that is godless, the God, you realize becomes perverted rather, rather quickly. You look at our society, and we are going down a slippery slope. And in, in the idol idea, there was this, this whole concept that, well, we have these temples to the idols, and so therefore, let's get prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. And one of the ways that we can worship the gods is to come down and, and have a relationship with these prostitutes. And we will engage the idol through the prostitutes. And so there was this whole twisted perversion that was happening in the worship of these idols. Uh, there was offerings of drink and food and blood. There were giving of gifts and praise and worship and kissing. What you start to notice is that there's this givenness to the idols to appease the gods. And so you have Israel who gets smack dab in the middle of all this, and God says, uh, I alone am your God. And you are not to be distracted by any of this stuff. That, That you are to have this exclusive relationship. And you are not to give yourselves, your time, your money, your focus, your body, or anything else, to the adoration or the appeasement of these idols. They actually can do nothing for you. Isn't it amazing how different our God is? That what our God demands from us is faith and love. He's not some lesser idol that manipulates in In fact, our God says, "I've actually come to serve and do you know how backwards that is to the culture? Where the whole mindset of the gods was, well, why, why did the gods create humanity? Well, the gods created humanity because they didn't want to do all the work. They were getting tired. They wanted servants, so they created the hu- human race. This, this is the mythology stuff, right? So they, they created humans to do the bidding of the gods. This is true if you look in the Egyptian. Uh, this is true about the Romans. This is true about the Greeks. Their whole establishment of the idols and the gods was that the gods were tired and lazy, and they wanted us to work for them. And yet God says, oh, do you know who I am? In fact, he reveals this in Genesis chapter 1 through 2. When he's talking about the creation scene, he says, I did everything for you. I did not make you so you could serve me. I actually made you, and I'm actually willing to stoop and serve. Jesus says, I I didn't come to be served. The one who actually deserves all of the service and worship and adoration— says, I didn't come to be served. I've come to actually serve and pour my life as a ransom for many. Do you know how backwards this is to the whole, all of culture? So in the middle of this culture of idolatry, listen to what God says. He gives a command. And he says this in Exodus chapter 20. He says, then God spoke all the words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you gotta understand before you even get into the command, God is establishing why you should be willing to obey him. Well, why should I be willing to obey? Because God says, I've, I've freed you. I've, I've done all the work for you. I've come and actually rescued you. I'm on your side. I'm here for you. I am your God. I have proven myself. So then listen to what he says. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and those who keep my commandments. I thought this statement from one of the scholars was was a great insight he says since idolatry substituted another god sorry since idolatry substituted another for god it violated the people's holiness and was parallel to adul- adultery hence the frequent use of negative sexual imagery for idolatry especially by the prophets what the scholar is saying is if you read through the prophets do you recognize how often the people of god are said to have committed idolatry or adultery why because God has said, "I've called you into an exclusive relationship. I've called you to love me with everything, and that is to be me alone," says the Lord. You are to have no other gods before you. Hey, I've done all the work for you. I've rescued you, so don't go and pollute and prostitute yourself with the culture around you. Don't go crazy with the idols and the uh, the, uh, the the cultural mindset that is swirling around you. Stay focused. And yet, here's the problem. Israel didn't do very hot. You would think, if God just brought you out of Egypt, cloud by day, fire by night, red sea, man in the bush. I mean, if if you're having all these experiences, don't you think when you had the visible right in front of you of who God is, don't you think it would have been like, they should have... It should have had one degree ease of obeying the Lord. I mean, if we had like a fire right here all the time, it'd be a lot it'd be like, He's here. I shouldn't lie to you. Like that makes sense to me. And yet, isn't it interesting that it was right after God gave this command that Moses goes back up on the mountain and the people are creating golden a golden calf? We're, we're not talking years after God gives a command. We're talking moments. And it's really easy to look at the Israelites and be like, they are so dumb. I mean, they are just insane. But folks, we have that same propensity. So if you were to just look really quick at an overview of Israel's worship of idols, Here's a good statement. He says, A brief survey of Israel's history reveals that the Israelites worshipped idols consistently until the end of the Babylonian exile in 520 B.C., despite the prohibitions against doing so. So here's an overview. In Exodus 32, immediately after their deliverance from Egypt, the Israelites made their first idol, the golden calf. In the land of Canaan, Israel began worshipping idols after Joshua's death, according to Judges chapter 2. In the tribal period, Israel would alternate, uh, alternately be obedient while led by a judge and idolatrous the rest of the time. So, as long as there is a judge in the land, oh, we're obeying. As soon as the judge died, I'll do whatever I want. Uh, during the United Monarchy, Solomon married foreign women and worshiped the idols of their deities, 1 Kings 11. This marked the coming fall of the monarchy. During the divided monarchy, monarchy both Israel and Judah worshiped idols. After splitting from Judah, Jeroboam made golden calves for the northern kingdom to worship instead of Yahweh, uh, 1 Kings 12. In Judah, Rehoboam worshiped Asteris, uh, 1 Kings chapter 14. The worship of idols continued in Judah, and only Hezekiah, king of Judah, attempted to eradicate it. During the Babylonian exile, the prophets condemned Israel for idolatry. Isaiah 42, 17 prophesies that those who worship idols will be humiliated. In the post-exile period, so when they came back from exile, intermarriage with foreign nations uh, led to idol worship, which is condemned. Are you? They did not do well. And I actually think we, in the modern church, have the same problem. And granted, we're not creating golden calves, but we're doing the very same thing. Why is it that God says no idols? I mean, why is he so uptight about this? If I can use that term. Why does he make the command, you shall serve no other gods? I get that one. Why does he say no idols? You can't even have an idol of me, says the Lord. Haven't you ever wondered that? It's just an odd thought. And this is not a complete list, but let me just give you a couple quick ideas. One of the key reasons is idols all throughout Scripture are described as lifeless objects. There's nothing to them. They're merely wood or silver. Uh, Listen to what one scholar says. He says, there are the parodies of idol making, meaning when God's making fun of the (laughs) idol-makers? It's awesome. Suggests that Israel banned idols. Let me start over again. The parodies of idol-making suggest that Israel banned idols because they were lifeless, human-made objects. Let me give you two passages that really flesh this out. Psalm 115. Listen to what the psalmist says about the idols and their idol-makers. And I think we've read this in one of the first, uh, first episodes. But Psalm 115 says this, Their idols are silver and gold. The work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. In other words, there's nothing to them. But then listen to what the psalmist says about those who make them. Those who make them will become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is, not only is the idol absolutely lifeless, it cannot do anything. Yes, you you pop some eyes in there, and you put some ears, and you have a little mouth. But it can't do anything. It can't see, it can't hear, it can't speak. You want to put a little arm on your idol? Fine, put an arm on the idol. But it can't touch anything. And do you realize, says the Lord, When you make idols, you actually become just like that. You become blind and deaf and unfeeling. You become unable to speak. You become just as lifeless and as dead as the idols that you are worshiping. And there is judgment against this. In Isaiah 44, it's a great chapter all about idolatry. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, just most of it. But listen, listen to what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah in terms of idolatry. Isaiah writes, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all of his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. In other words, he's spending all of his energy doing this. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. In other words, it's just kindling. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. Are you seeing the 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 lunacy of this? You grow up a tree, you cut it down, use part for a god, part for food, part for fuel. Right? And you just, oh, you're warming yourself, you're cooking your food, and then you worship it. So you're gonna, you're willing to destroy it, the wood, and worship it all at the same time. That is dumb. Uh Uh-huh. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes. Listen to this idea again, that you become like the idol. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire. I have baked bread upon its coals. I roast the meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He who feeds on ashes, a deluded heart, has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? In other words, he has become so dumb, he's become so blinded to what he is doing, that he can't even see the very God that is in his hand. This piece of wood is a lie. It's a charlatan. It's a fake. So you get this idea that idols are described as lifeless objects. There's nothing to them. So God says, I don't want one of those. You can't have an idol that represents me. What are you going to have that showcases the fullness of God? So I don't want one. Because those things are lifeless. But not just that. God is not seen. Therefore, what are you going to make? Now we understand if you had the sun god, you could create a little sun out of a stone. Right? You, You can mimic creation but how are you going to create an idol out of the Creator who is unseen? Deuteronomy 4.15 says, So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. Moses says, there was no form. You can't see him. Now we understand in the New Testament, God is seen. Hey, we get that. Praise the Lord. That's phenomenal. But what, what are you going to create if you're going to create an idol for our, our God? A golden calf has to be one of the dumbest choices for the God of the universe. Think that through. That's dumb. Have you ever looked at a cow and went, "Mm, that's my God. (laughs) Cows are dumb. And cows look funny. But maybe here's a better reason. Do you realize there's actually only one image that's created in God's image. That's to be the representation of God to this world. It's you. And it's interesting, uh, when when you look at Genesis chapter 1, it says God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle of over the earth and over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God had created him. Male and female, he created him. Isn't it interesting? If, If I make a golden calf, then I've actually placed myself above that calf because I was created to rule the calves, the cattle. But when God made you, he made you in his image. You are the image bearer. God says, I won't have an idol. Those are lifeless. I won't have an idol because there's nothing to those. But I want the world to see me. So he makes life in you. Isn't that a profound thought? That God refuses to have a single idol because he has an image bearer that is to represent him to the entire universe. That when the world looks upon you, they go, oh, there is still a God on this earth. In Genesis 9, 6, it says, whoever sheds men's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Look at what this one scholar says. He says, God fashioned humans in the image of God. Humans, in contrast, may not fashion God in the image of humans or anything else. So God has made us to be his image, but we are not allowed to create any image to represent him. Because that's what you're for. Go back to this idea Could it be that God's asking, the, the, one of the reasons why he does not allow us to worship idols or to create idols is, goes back to this idea that he actually longs to have actual intimate relationship with you? He's not interested in a bunch of religious people who go down to the temple once in a while and sing the songs and give the sacrifices and pay the priests and then go off and live their lives. That was idol worship stuff. God actually wants relationship with his people. You don't have relationship with an idol. And God says, I want an exclusive relationship where my people actually love me with everything. That I would be, as Paul says in Colossians, that I would be preeminent. That I would have first place in absolutely everything. So if I can maybe simplify just this idea, uh, and I'm trying to get to a working definition of idolatry. And so let me give you a few proposals that I really like. Uh, Here are, uh, I've been reading a ton of books on this topic, and I just wanted to give you four little quotes in terms of what is idolatry? Not so much in the old days. We understand it's silver and gold stuff, but what is idolatry today? So one book is by Dan Allender and uh, Tremper Longman. And this is, this is how they define idolatry. This is the insight they give. They say, perhaps you are familiar with the idols that are described in the books like Exodus and Isaiah. They were false gods, represented by statues that they worshipped not only by the people in the surrounding land, but tragically by fallen Israelites as well. They had names like Baal or Bel, Marduk or ashtaroth and many, many others. People put these idols in the center of their life, and to borrow a phrase from a mid-20th century theologian, they became the people's, quote, ultimate concern. They go on and say, men and women offered their material goods and labor and time with the hope that the gods would make their lives better. Or if I may change it a little bit uh, simpler, more comfortable, easier. That's, That's the idea. So they go on and say, but you don't have to bow down before a statue in order to participate in perverse worship. Ecclesiastes reminds us that idol worship often takes a more subtle form. To the author of Ecclesiastes, the pursuit of money or power or any object of desire is the same as bowing down before Baal. It's interesting. Uh, Brad Bigney uh, wrote this incredible book called Gospel Treason, uh, which Taylor, or wherever Taylor's sitting, uh, said you've got, oh, there's Taylor, uh, I was speaking in Missouri a few months ago, and Taylor's like, have you read this book? You've got to read this book if you're doing this topic. Uh, and I'll, bring, I'll talk more about it. It is, it is a great book. Uh, it's called Gospel Trees, and This is how he defines idols in the book. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what could be an idol in your life? Anything. Uh, Norm Wakefield uh, says this about idolatry. He says, whenever someone looks to anything or anyone... Other than God as the source of all things, he commits the sin of idolatry. Here is a good definition. Looking to any person, object, or idea to supply only what God can supply. It's a great definition. Uh, One of my uh, old friends uh, wrote a book, and he he kind of took Norm Wakefield's concept and kind of fleshed it out a little bit more simply. And I, I really like the way uh, that John Juman says this. This is how he fleshes out what is idolatry. He says, "idolatry is the opposite of love, for it is the attempt to get what we want from someone or something. Idolatry is really above the motive and the, ab- sorry, about the motive and the intent of the heart to look to someone or something else besides Jesus to meet my needs." And then here later in the book is how he simplifies even that. He says, idolatry is looking to anyone or anything else besides Jesus to meet my needs. And I want to, over just the next several sessions, I, I want to f- begin to flesh this out. Because, okay, we, we don't have statues typically in our lives, hopefully. But we have a lot of things that compete for our love with Jesus. We have a lot of things that we've given ourselves to or we've added into Jesus to say, well, yeah, it's going to be Jesus plus whatever. What if Jesus actually just wants to be just Jesus in your life? And, it, and Christianity was never meant to be Jesus plus something. It's meant to be all about Jesus. That he is the preeminent one that has to have first place in our lives. Can I encourage us all? Would we allow the Spirit of God to put his finger on anything and everything in our life and that may be vying for attention that we're trying to meet and satisfy our needs other than Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I look at our modern church culture and, and what I see is we are all wrapped up in a whole bunch of even good things, but they're not Jesus. We are called to an exclusive relationship with the God of the universe. And it's interesting, as I've been getting into this series, my thought was, well, there's probably going to be some, probably some things in my life that's going to have to change, but I, I don't have really an idolatry issue. But the more I've been getting into it, one of the things I've been realizing is, you know what? A lot of us have even made religious stuff our idols. And we have all this good churchy things in our lives, but it's actually replaced Jesus. And we we put all this religious language over it, but what would happen if, if we would truly come to the Lord and say, Lord, could I have an exclusive relationship with you? What would it look like if you stripped my life down what, what, what would happen if I actually began to walk in humility and see my overwhelming, desperate need for you? And no matter what my issue is, no, no matter what my habits or addictions or problems or whatever, whatever it is that you're walking through, whatever the challenge or the trials or the, the issues of your life may be, do you realize the only solution is Jesus? What if we actually allowed him To be Jesus in our life? I want Him. I don't want Jesus plus. I want Jesus who is preeminent. Would you be open to Him? Would you seek His face? Would you be so daring to invite the Spirit of our Lord to search and try your hearts to see if there's any affections? anything that you're seeking after, any way you're trying to meet and satisfy a need other than him. Pray with me, Jesus. Yeah, we might not have the the idols of silver and gold, but, but Lord, as I look at culturally where the church is at, we are so wrapped up in stuff. We're wrapped up in distraction. We're wrapped up in entertainment. We're wrapped up in religious stuff. We're we're, we're just wrapped up in everything but you. Lord, what would it look like for us to humbly come before you and say, Lord, search and try our hearts? And yeah, there may not be actual statues, but Lord, would you see if there's any idolatry in our souls? Anything that we've been going to for affection satisfaction, something to meet my need other than you. And Lord, I just pray that as we continue through this series that that you would continually illuminate your word and that you would through your spirit press our lives. Thank you that you are so faithful. And Lord, I'm just awestruck by how often the prophets were calling the people back to a place of repentance because they've gotten lost. They have left their first their first love. That they've gotten distracted with the culture and the, the gods of their culture. And as such, they were committing adultery against you. Lord, I pray that we as a body of Christ would be a pure and spotless bride with a single lover of our soul. And Lord, I just pray that even this day that you would just, in your special, sweet way, would you put your finger on anything in our lives that we need to submit and surrender to you, even if they're good, even if they're religious. Lord, could you truly be preeminent and the focus of my heart? And may the only representation on this planet not be silver and gold and calves and animals and statues. Lord, could we, your people, be a clear and pure picture, a representation, an image bearer of you to this world. And Lord, let us not degrade you to anything, anything else. Lord, thank you that you are God and we are not. And Lord, we want to worship you this morning for who you are. Lord, we're not interested in singing songs this morning. We're not interested in going through the emotions, Lord, we want to somehow behold you. And in the midst of beholding you as you are, we want to worship you, for you are worthy. Lord, we don't want to worship idols. We don't want to bow down to calves. Lord, you've invited us to an exclusive relationship with you, a relationship that we actually get to have with the God of the universe. So, Lord, could you just somehow capture us and captivate us and draw our gaze heavenward and can we just be so overwhelmed by the reality of who you are that we just can't help ourselves but worship we love you in your precious name we pray, amen Daily Thunder is a listener supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training at Ellerslie we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave hearted Christians for such a time as this